I, I think back of how much I've grown and the networks that I've made that if Wyland can do that for other people in the industry, it makes the whole thing worthwhile that, yes, we're, you know, we're doing these programs, but everyone that you speak to um, in any industry will say the networks that you build are, some of the most important things that you'll have in your career. And G'day and welcome to episode 40 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and for those of you in Victoria, I hope today is the final day in this third lockdown. I'm really excited to bring today's guest, Kari Moffat, to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Kari and I were actually at Marcus Oldham College together, and I've been amazed at the way that Kari has taken and chased opportunities in a year since we finished university. Kari is currently the chair of the Young Live Exporters Committee, a group that she founded back in 2019. She's an executive with the Queensland Livestock Exporters Association, and her day job sees her as Animal Welfare Assurance Manager with Oztrex. Given the theme for this month is to understand more about the live export industry, I took the chance to kick off some of those questions with Kari. However, I was also fascinated at how she fits it all in and how she continues to give back to the industry. One thing I admire about Kari is that with all her work, it's about something and a bigger purpose than herself. Whether that be supporting young people in industry to build their capability, supporting people understand animal welfare in destination countries, or her approach to leadership within her various community roles. Welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast, Kari. Thank you so much for having me, Ollie. Really good to be here. I reckon you're the first student, or yeah, student who I was at Marcus with who's come on. So there you go, the first for everything. There you go. <laughs> Glad to be on. Very exciting. <laughs> now, I like to start off the podcast just, yeah, basically just having a bit of a chinwag. But for you, I'd be interested because you've lived kind of all over, particularly in Northern Australia. But for you, like you grew up in regional Vic on a small cattle property. Was ag always on the cards for you? What was it that, yeah, brought you into the industry? Look, I grew up on a small beef farm in, in Victoria, as you said. But no, when I was at high school um, in inner Melbourne, it wasn't something that I was necessarily thinking of doing in my career. I was, you know, going down the usual thought process of marketing or advertising or something like that. Um, and when I finished year 12, wasn't really sure what I was going to do, and um, but I knew I loved my horses. So I um, I found the course at Marcus Oldham in Equine and, and jumped straight into that. And uh, I think it was only about two months in, I, I realised I was in the wrong course and was much more interested in what the, the agribusiness and farm management students were doing. So um, I set my sights on that um, and I finished my, my diploma in Equine. Um, and and once I once I graduated that I wanted to go and get some more practical experience before coming back to Marcus and and doing a was there elements and this might be a silly question but were there elements of the horse course which you started to see were really relatable in the day to day jobs of the ag operations as well probably what uh, I realised in equine that for for me horses would always be a hobby but it wasn't something that I wanted to. Uh, pursue as a career um, and and the conversations that I had at Marcus in my first year I, it really sparked my love for the beef industry and I knew as soon as I graduated that that was something I really wanted to pursue so I uh, 
I did what everyone with not much experience does and, and cold call a few producers in the north. I really wanted to go as far north as possible and get out of Victoria. Um, and I ended up getting a, uh, a position at a Hereford stud in central New South Wales. So I packed my bags after finishing my first year and went up there and was riding horses every day and, and loving it. Uh, but a few months into that role, I, uh, I got the opportunity uh, to jump on a live export ship, which as someone coming from Victoria, I knew nothing about, but I knew that the the opportunity to, to travel overseas and work with cattle every day sounded pretty good as a, as a young person. Um, so I had the call with the exporter and they said, uh, can, have you worked with Northern Cattle before? And I said, no, but I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, and I was on a, a plane up in a week's time up to Townsville and uh, was uh, with three, two or three other stockmen were on that ship with me um, and we were heading for Indonesia. So that was a pretty eye-opening experience um, for my first boat, but I just absolutely loved it. And I knew I wanted to continue on and, when I finished that first shipment, uh, they said, do you want to do another one from uh, New Zealand to China? And I said, definitely. So that started my onboard stockman career, um, which ended up continuing on for two years. I, I delayed going back to Marcus and, um, and sailed throughout the Southeast Asia uh, and to China. So it was, uh, it was a really fun time and got to, uh, got to experience a lot of different countries work with a lot of different nationalities and definitely a time to look back on as a highlight. Yeah, far out. When it, um, like in terms of traveling the world, you were always doing it with cattle or did you do sheep as well as part of those trips? No, sheep are not something I have uh, a lot of experience in and the exporter that I was working for at the time didn't do too many sheep shipments and they were mainly in the, um, in beef cattle to, to Southeast Asia and, dairy and breeders to China. So they were the, the shipments that I got a lot of exposure in. Yeah, wow. So obviously like we've jumped straight into the live export piece, but was that, was it just a chance encounter that got you involved in on it? Like I suppose growing up, you you were from regional Vic um, and I'm sure like similar to like Hugh Dawson, he's been on Ollie Thorne, like the, the exposure that a lot of other people had had to live export prior to getting involved was literally what we saw in 2011. And I don't want to dwell on the negatives of it, but that, that's a massive move, just throwing your hat in the ring, jumping on a plane, heading to Northern Australia and then on a boat and off you go. Yeah, it's, um, look, I remember I was in year 11 when 2011 hit and uh, I think we were doing debating on media topics at the time and a lot of girls got up and, and spoke about how, how terrible the industry was and I think back on that now that there was there was just a real misunderstanding of why the trade existed and, and why we do what we do so um, you know that's really interesting to think back on but yeah at the, at the time I started in, in the industry I had no connection to it obviously I yeah, grew up with a small amount of cattle at home but nothing on the on the scale that you know we see in the north um so it's pretty green but the uh the industry was very welcoming of of young people and and if you're passionate and uh hard working and just keen to get in and have a go uh they were more than welcome to give you the chance and i think that's still something that we see now um the 
a lot of the people I, I work with uh, did start on boats. It's a very uh, natural progression in our industry that you see stockmen work their way up through through the ranks um, and having that, that on the ground understanding uh, of of how we export livestock from A to B. It really helps further down your career path having that um, that base understanding of the whole supply chain and. I think that's something that really drew me into the role that there's not too many jobs that you get to see every aspect of the supply chain. Mostly you're quite siloed and, you know, you don't know really what happens post farm gate or you're just working in an abattoir, um, for example, but the live export industry is, is a, a career that you get to work, you will most likely get to work in all aspects from on-farm buying, pre-export, um, on boats, and then in market, um, working with the importers. So it's, it's a really uh, eye-opening experience when you get that level of understanding of the supply chain that we work in. Yeah, for sure. And the exposure to like different cultures too would just be fascinating. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. And challenging like all, all the same. But I, I do want to jump into like your current roles, but also the roles you've had around animal welfare. But firstly, I, you mentioned that you were, yeah, you had a love for horses and that was what drew you, I suppose, into Marcus Oldham and then... Funnily enough, from that, cattle came to the fore. And what is it about working with animals that you enjoy? I think that it's you can day to day, like for example, working when I was working on boats, there was a real pride in in seeing those cattle get on a ship and being responsible for their health and welfare. And once you got to the end of the shipment and you're watching them get off in a you know fatter and quite happy and calmer than when they got on. Um, that was something I got really proud of. And um, I think Ollie might've mentioned it on his podcast before, but the cattle, you know, they quietened down so quickly um, after a couple of days on a shipment and, uh, and getting to work that closely with livestock, I think is, um, is a real um, pleasure. You know, you, you like getting out of bed in the morning. Um, and unfortunately I, uh, I'm more behind a desk these days, but um, getting out in the field and going into feedlots is, still something I really enjoy because I don't think you'd work in this industry if, if you didn't have a love for animals. So um, it's something I think that unites uh, the live export industry because we all have very common values. Yeah, absolutely. And I think well, what I've loved and sometimes it looks like you're at work. Oh, sorry. Sometimes it looks like you're on a holidays when you're actually at work with some of these amazing places when you're in market in Indonesia or Vietnam, but like, what, what is it that's, yeah, I suppose, when did it click that there were opportunities from as an onboard stock person and you thought, like, geez, like, I can really climb 
and create a career. This isn't just something that's I'm going to do basically as a, a fill in for a couple of years and go back to university and take some other avenue. Like, yeah, was there a mentor or someone that kind of took you under the wing and said, like, Carrie, there's there's real opportunity to work your way into some real businesses and, and global businesses too through the industry? I think uh, I was pretty lucky that when I was on board, I got the opportunity to get off and go and visit our importers and visit the cattle that we'd just taken, uh, say, for example, for, into Vietnam. And I'd go there and, and see how they were going in the feedlots and go around the abattoirs and, and understand the supply chain better. So I knew that the other end of the supply chain was where I would really like to, to work one day. And I always had that in the back of my mind. I did know that going back and finishing my studies was something I really needed to do before I took too much time off and uh, I never got around to it. So I did go back and, and graduate uh, my agribusiness degree. And uh, my one of my past um, managers, Gemma Lomax, uh, called me up when I graduated and said, uh, I know you haven't really thought about it, but would you like to work um, as an FCAS manager? And uh, I didn't really understand what that was at the time, only having that exposure of being a stockman. But the more she explained what it was, the more I knew that was exactly the role I wanted to be in. Whereas before I thought, you know, I'd love to be in operations, loading the boats and, and being, you know, a logistics coordinator. And that was a path I was quite quickly going down. But it was luck that I think I found my dream role um, that I didn't even know existed. And I think that's something that uh, I love telling people that don't uh, – don't plan your path too far because you just never know what other opportunities are out there. And so I just want to jump in. SCAS, E-S-C-A-S, is Export Supply Chain Assurance Scheme. Is that right? Uh, yes, Assurance System, yes. Bloody, so, bloody acronyms, eh? No. So, so, <laughs> Our industry's full of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, can you, like, explain a bit more about what that is, how it's implemented and then how it's managed as well and us I suppose beyond that to throw a heap of things at you. Like, yeah, what are the benefits yeah. of operating under an SCAS system? So I guess I might start with the technicalities of it and then I'll give you a non-export uh, example of what that actually means. So Perfect. SCAS is, uh, is built on four principles. So you've got animal welfare, which is your animal handling and slaughter um, of importing countries conforming to... OAE standards, which are your international animal welfare standards, um, control through the supply chain. So exporters uh, must ensure that they have control of the uh, of the cattle or sheep that they're exporting right through to the point of slaughter. And to do that, we use traceability methods. So ensuring that we can trace all those animals that we export all the way through the supply chain, so through all the feedlots and through all the abattoirs where they're processed. And then on top of that, to ensure that that is happening, we have independent auditors. So all of our facilities uh, in market are audited by a third party um, quite routinely. So depending on um, risk rating of that facility, it'll be audited anywhere between one and four times a year. So that all sounds quite complicated. Um, so to kind of take it away from export, if I was someone selling a TV from Australia to say Japan. Um, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have to worry about that TV once uh, it left the shores in Australia. I'd put it on the boat 
and someone buys it at the other end and then, you know, I get my money and I go and sell another TV. Whereas uh, under SCAS, the person selling the TV is still required to maintain control and traceability and understand where that TV is being sold into Japan. So it's a, it's a pretty unique system and uh, I don't believe it is um, a standard that is seen anywhere else in the world. So it's very unique. Um, but yeah, that kind of gives you a little bit of a, um, a basic understanding of, of the, the regulatory requirements that, uh, that we have to operate. So all the, ex all the cattle that we export and sheep, if they are for, um, if they're for slaughter, uh, they have to be traced right through the, through the system. So that's obviously quite, quite a lot of records and, um, it takes a lot of human resources. So exporters have, a, you know, big teams in their, in their importing countries to, uh, to ensure that, you know, those, those animals are being processed and, and handled in accordance with Australian standards. Yeah, wow, I, and I love that you use the t the TV analogy there because it simplifies it a lot. But it, yeah, I suppose a, a question like, do you what happens if you lose visibility, or can can you lose visibility of the animals, or is that why you've got, like you said, such big footprints of people on the ground ensuring? Yeah, so I guess the the thing to remember is SCAS is a system to ensure you know quality assurance. Um, and like any quality assurance system, it will identify um, breaches, and but that's the system working. Um, and I think that's something that probably gets lost in translation sometimes, but um, identification of issues in the supply chain is actually, you know, the system working, and then steps can be put in place to ensure that those, those breaches are, are being um, resolved and, and closed out with corrective action. Um, so... Of course, there's, you know, there's always the one percenters, which, you know, are quite heavily publicised in the Australian media when, when, thing go, when, when things go wrong. But, uh, you know, for the most part, um, our, our animals are, are going through closed supply chains. So in Indonesia, there's obviously thousands of different facilities, but we can only send to approved uh, abattoirs and, and feed lots that are approved by the government. So it's quite a strict... Uh, strict process for approval and and the you know the auditing uh, process on top of that ensures that those standards are being maintained throughout the year and then exporters on top of that will have in market staff that are maintaining those really strong relationships with the with our importers and uh, ensuring that you know when there's things go wrong we're there to help um, doing training helping with equipment things like that and so your role now as an animal welfare and compliance manager, you're responsible it, not just purely when that animal's on the ship, it's the whole way through, is that right? Yes. Yeah, so through the export supply chain, you have the Australian standards of exporting livestock, ASIL. Uh, so that's when the animals get into quarantine in Australia, all the way through on the voyage and right before they disembark the ship. And then SCAS starts from when they get off the ship through to the feedlot and then through to the abattoir processing. So it's that whole uh, supply chain in market that FCAS covers. Oh, wow. I want to um, I want to take like a slightly, well, it is following the voyage, but so jumping into, I suppose, some of the lessons and learnings that, uh, and just purely through that exposure, I think, because 
of travel because perspective is such an incredible thing for I think yeah obviously in Australia but even Western countries we're very fortunate with our way of life um, in many respects but in terms of when you've been on the ground over there what is is there anything in particular I suppose when it comes to how the people interact with livestock or the role that livestock have in these people's lives in these destination countries that has really stood out to you? I think, uh, you know, working in in the feedlots, for example, in, in Vietnam, it's so clear that, and, and this is across the board in agriculture, that animals that are not being treated correctly or um, don't have the right welfare standards are not performing. Um, and that's, that's something that any farmer knows. And the, the guys in those feedlots are, are farmers. They're, you know, they're looking after livestock and ensuring that they're performing well um, to get the best results. And that's something that doesn't change whether you're in Australia or Vietnam. Um, so that's something that really resonated with me that, you know, at the core of it, we're, we're people in charge of looking after livestock. Um, and they care just as much as we do about them um, being happy and healthy. And, you know, they don't want to see animals suffering or, or doing doing poorly. So their, their role is, you know, ensuring that those those livestock are performing the, the best they can. Um, but I think we still need to remember that these these countries rely on, on Australian livestock coming in for, for their food security. They don't have the, the land that Australia is so lucky to have to, to produce our own uh, domestic supply. They, they rely on us to, to assist with that. Uh, so the relationship that Australia has with Indonesia in terms of supplying live cattle is extremely important to their, their food security and ensuring that they can feed their families with you know, disease-free, high-quality protein. Yeah, and that's a pretty poignant point, isn't it? Like, it, yeah food security and particularly like on our doorstep, like in Asia there, there is billions of people and there is some serious health concerns and whether that is people eating the wrong types of food or just not even having access to enough, like it, yeah, it is 2021, but the the levels of poverty, but also like nutrition, like Australia's got a role in really helping countries like feed themselves and feed their people. It's like, it's a pretty special thing to be a part of. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the other aspect is, you know, there's quite a lot of different demographics in these countries and, and not everyone can afford the uh, the boxed meat that ex, uh, that Australia exports overseas. Um, so having the ability to, to meet the different demographics, which Australia does through export and boxed uh, products, uh, means that we're, we're meeting more of that market share. Um, and and we have to remember that, you know, northern Northern cattle um, don't necessarily meet the domestic uh, palate. Uh, we prefer fattier meat. Uh, so, though, and that's the opposite in Southeast Asia. Um, they quite like the leaner uh, beef that comes from a Brahmin. So, it's really well suited to those Southeast Asian markets. Um, now, I want to, um, I want to turn, and I suppose it's nearly on. It's a leadership piece, which I. I hope you see yourself as a leader because what you and the others have done with the Young Live Exporters Network is seriously incredible. And I think like it's not very often that a bunch of young people are willing to throw their heads and hearts really behind something. And particularly around the live export industry, like it, 
it, it is so impressive. Like, and we often talk about it, at the Future Farmers Network, just how well you guys are doing with engaging with kind of the broader public and really actually taking a leadership role in industry. But how how did the need for a Young Live Exporters Network come about? And I suppose, yeah, where did the conversations for it start? Thank you for those comments, Ollie. That was really nice. <laughs> no, seriously though, like you guys, in terms of we see, and one thing that I've really come across, I think, with Humans of Ag is there's a real lack of confidence with people in industry because they're like young people particularly because they're scared of what the repercussions might be and there's this perception that if you throw your hand up there's going to be 100 people on the other side of the fence that will shoot you down and it's just it's not true like I can't tell you like one of the most amazing things I see when it's whether it's on the podcast or someone's written a blog and they share their story it's like positivity prevails every day of the week and for you guys, I hope you hope you're seeing it and getting wind of it as well with what you're doing. Yeah, it's um, it's a project I've been really excited to uh, to be a part of from the start. I guess if we go back, uh, Wyland started in 2019, and it was purely uh, I think we're sitting in a bar at the time talking about some gaps in in our knowledge and especially soft skills uh, going into those junior management roles uh, and we were looking, we, you know, we thought, you know, all these other industries have youth programs and, and networks um, and the live export industry didn't have that. Uh, so we thought, well, why don't we just do it ourselves? And it was kind of as simple as that. And we woke up the next morning and uh, probably with some sore heads and thought, oh gosh, I think, you know, we actually need to do this. Uh, so uh, John Cunnington, Pat Cool, uh, Grayson Webster, and myself uh, got together, and and it was it was very organic. Uh, you know, we and at the time, I think back now, we we kind of built the proposal around twenty members, and we thought, oh, we'll just do a couple of workshops throughout the year, and and that'll be that. And uh, now, fast forward three years, and we have over one hundred and fifty members. Um, which was definitely not what we expected and we're into our second committee now. Uh, but the, the whole reason it was established was to provide professional development opportunities to young people in the export supply chain. So our membership ranges from producers, truck drivers, um, people working in the export depots, exporters, um, in-market staff and even some importers as well um, in market. So it's a real range of the supply chain and I think it's pretty cool that we've been able to, to build a membership that is the whole live export supply chain. It's not just uh, people working for export companies. And and out of that, uh, obviously, it was mainly just focused around providing professional development and we've done um, mate-to-manager programs and negotiation and some Excel courses. But now when I talk to people that are engaged with Wyland, uh, some of the biggest things they've got out of it is, well, I know people that are down the supply chain now. Um, Hugh Dawson, who you've had on, I'll never remember, he got up and said, Wyland has allowed me to, to connect with the other end of the road trains. Um, whereas he didn't have that connection before, the cattle would get on the, on the, uh, on the truck um, off out of Beetaloo. And, and that was the, the last thing he was uh, last thing he saw and he, he didn't really understand the rest of the supply chain. But 
but now we've got this really great group of of young passionate people in industry that are really looking to engage not only with each other uh, but but at the external community as well and uh, Wyland I think um, for me has been you know something that's given me the opportunity to to develop my skills you know to talk about what I do and um, you know that's that's something that I'm very passionate about because you know as you said at the start um, it can be a little bit daunting you know you know should I say something should I just keep quiet and keep doing what we're doing and and hope no one no one's looking but I think it got to the point where it's like hang on I'm really um, passionate about what I do and we're doing the right thing and very proud of it let's let's tell that story and I think that's something probably in the last 12 months that I'm really seeing that from a lot of people in industry um, people you know getting on podcasts or talking to to reporters and uh, getting that story out there and I hope that continues because it's only going to help uh, in the future that you know small small events are going to happen um, and that's that's kind of a, a part of working working in any in any industry there's there's always going to be issues that arise but I think at the core, if, if people understand why we're doing what we're doing and you know, we're, we're continuously improving, um, that in the long run, I think that that will help. Absolutely. And and I'll, so I want to understand, you, you touched on a couple of points there and you quite, I hope you don't mind me saying, but you said like talking about your story, like it is daunting and, um, and it can be scary, but at the same time too, it's important. But I suppose, yeah, I'd love to understand over the three years, to get momentum as a, a youth group, like I'm sure you would have had to stand up several times and say, this is who I am, this is where we're going. What, what, what have you learned through that? Yeah, I've definitely learned that uh, jumping in the deep end is the only way to, to get better. And um, for anyone listening that thinks, oh, you know, I'd never want to get up and talk in front of a bunch of people, um, I, can, I can resonate with that. It's not something that... Uh, <laughs> I necessarily enjoy, but uh, it's I, you know, I, I'm pretty, uh, pretty good at just saying yes <laughs> and putting myself in positions that sometimes make me feel uncomfortable. But I've definitely grown uh, since the establishment of Wyland, and I, I think back of how much I've grown and the networks that I've made. That if Wyland can do that for other people in the industry, it makes the whole thing worthwhile. That. Yes, we're, you know, we're doing these programs, but everyone that you speak to um, in any industry will say the networks that you build are, are some of the most important things that you'll have in your career and, um, you know, can, can determine, determine your success because how many jobs do we know that, you know, never get advertised and it's, it's a phone call and, and you, you know, it's because you know someone. So building, building networks for, for the other young people in the industry is something I'm very passionate about. And uh, I think we're on the right track. It's, uh, as I said, it's been pretty organic for the last two years and we've just had a new committee start. So we've got uh, Camille Camp and Ryan Olive have joined us along with Patrick Poole, who stayed on. And uh, yeah, we're really excited to kind of kind of bed it down now and and continue to develop the network now that it's, it's membership's growing uh, a lot bigger than we thought. Uh, but you know, creating structure around our annual annual plan and and thinking more strategically on on what it is we're trying to achieve and and what we're not doing, so that members understand exactly what they're signing up to and what they what the benefits are. So 
that's something that as a committee we're working on at the moment. And so as a, yeah, and this is a question out of my own interest because I think I grapple with it too, but in terms of, so you've, you've built this organization or started this organization with a few others, which has grown, I'd say exponentially, like you've, you far exceeded what you guys were hoping to achieve initially. Like how, how are you going juggling, I suppose, like the ambition of what the organisation could be with actually, well, coming back to that piece, well, it's, a, it's all about personal development and giving people opportunities. Like how, how often are you jumping between that, yeah, here's the stars, let's get there, and then actually like, oh, no, let's, let's get back on the ground and, and yeah, and, and do what's possible. <laughs> it, it's a, exactly. It's a hard balance. Uh, the committee all have full-time jobs, and, and this is something we do on a volunteer basis on our, you know, after, after work and, and on the weekends. Um, so, and that's it, you know, the, the sky's the limit on some of these things, but then you, you also have to bring it back and be realistic of, okay, what do we have time for um, and what's going to give the most benefit to members? Um, so, you know, for example, you know, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, do we go down the advocacy path? And, and that's something that we keep going back and forth on, but I think we've settled on, well, what about if we just help our membership develop the skills they need to be their own advocates in in the role that they're in? And that's probably a, a space that we're quite settled on now. Uh, and, you know, going forward, I think, you know, these kind of committees, because they are, it's a startup and, and people come in with new ideas, there's, there's always room to move. But at the moment, we're pretty happy with everything kind of coming under two pillars of, network uh, developing networks and providing those professional development opportunities so that people can grow and develop in their roles interesting and in terms of around balancing the full-time work and the volunteering role like ultimately the ag industry and rural communities are built off people of hundreds of volunteer hours how, how do you guys go as a committee like i suppose yeah Honestly, like it is a lot of time that you have to put into these things. How has it detracted from from work, or have you just had to forego opportunities? I suppose in your personal life to fit everything in. I think, uh, as an industry in agriculture, I think we're all a little bit uh, guilty of probably uh, not having the best work life balances. <laughs> and I can definitely say that's something I'm I'm not great at uh, but something I'm a lot more conscious of especially last year I think you know everyone uh, in 2020 you know battled with with the significant changes that that year brought and it definitely dawned on me that taking a break having holidays and um, you know having that chill out time is, is something you need to do uh, but yeah I think the important bit of, of it is is that you've got to, if you're really passionate about what you're doing I guess for me as an example, I don't necessarily always feel like it's work. It's something I really enjoy doing. And, and that's something as agriculture as a whole, I think that it's not, it's not work because we're so passionate and we live it and breathe it every day, uh, which I guess comes back to that work-life balance, not always happening. Uh, but as a committee, uh, you know, spreading the, spreading the work and ensuring that everyone feels like they have support uh, on, on the, the projects that we're running um, is something that has been quite an important thing to 
to work on um, and and making sure that our programs are not uh, not getting too big that the workload is is getting out of control. But um, I think it's a work in progress and, and it's all being so young that it's, it's something that we're kind of learning on the go. Um, but for, for the committee's perspective, it's in, in a few years' time when, when these people jump onto other committees, I think, well, we all hope that the role, the, the skills that we learn now are only going to help us more in, in our future careers. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, learn, learn as we go. And I think there's always that room to make mistakes. Um, so and that's how we learn. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Now I've got a question which I ask um, everyone on the podcast, which is funny because it's like, yeah, started off, I, I know some people ask questions around what would be your advice to your 20-year-old self, but like bush that because you can't change that. Um, but I'd love to know just purely around, yeah, what your advice would be. Let's say you're walking in because you love public speaking. You're going to talk to a bunch of year 10, year 11 students and obviously it's quite a uh, important time of their life when it starts to come about um, careers and opportunities. I suppose what would be some of your advice to them about what are the opportunities that have been presented to you through agriculture? You can choose live exports specifically, but like, why should kids, students in at yeah, 16, 17 years old start to be thinking about agriculture? You know, it's really funny that I actually have to go and have this chat in about a week's time with a bunch of year 12 students. <laughs> oh, I see. Now you can just, you've got this pre-recorded. You're laughing. Exactly. Uh, if I think back, the well, the best thing I did was take opportunity. Uh, I think a lot of, you know, if I think back to year 12, everyone was really concerned about, okay, what am I going to do after year 12? And having, you know, the next five years planned out, um, I, I would say, don't plan ahead um, and that and that gives you the flexibility to to take those opportunities when they arise because I think if I'd asked myself, gosh, I've been in the industry not seven years now, but say 10 years ago, you know, you, you're going to go and um, work work on live export vessels to Southeast Asia, I would have said you're dreaming. But uh, taking, taking that opportunity was the best thing I ever did. So I would definitely be telling um, people at school to, to keep that in mind and not be not be closed to to new ideas or um, or you know opportunities that arise. Um, working in agriculture is is something I love immensely and I wouldn't choose any other industry. Uh, and I think uh, you know as a as an industry we need to be conveying that message um, more and more because the opportunities that that are in this industry are, are incredible and, and endless um, and there's so much flexibility I believe in, in a lot of the roles that are um, are out there and there's a lot of roles that we don't even know exist until we kind of stumble upon them so I think uh, for, for students it would it would probably be go and go and do some research um, see what's out there and, and go and you know talk talk to people and see what they do um, I think that would be my advice. Sorry, that was probably a bit long. <laughs> no, it's very sound advice. And I think what what I find really interesting with you, Kari, and the work you do with Wyland, and then you've obviously got the, the other board commitment. But like the, I think like if there's a theme that comes through, like it's it's never been about like self gratification and being like, oh yeah, I'm doing this because I'm going to get a pat on the back. Like it's always 
bigger than yourself and it's well, what are the challenges but opportunities for those people in the destination country or how do we get yeah young people coming through with the skills so they can take opportunities which i reckon is a uh, incredible quality to have and i think be interested to see where wireland go over the next few years uh particularly yeah with with you in the chair role and and steering that i think yeah very exciting times so thank you very much for joining us on on the podcast it, hope it wasn't too daunting for you. <laughs> Thank you, Ollie. It's been really great. Well, that's it from us for another week. Thank you so much for joining us on the Humans of Agriculture podcast. If you want to find out any more about Kari, you can jump over to the Young Live Exporters Network on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, or any of those channels and find them. In terms of getting in touch with us, you can find us at Humans of Agriculture with an underscore on Instagram. We're also putting it out there that we need more people to be identifying with agriculture and so we're looking for more people to share their story. The podcast is only one avenue of it. We also have written stories and blogs as part of it. So if you want to get involved, the door's open. The ball's now in your court. You can get in touch with me, ollie at humansofagriculture.com. For all of those of you who are still in lockdown in Victoria, my heart goes out to you. Stay safe, stay sane, and hopefully next week we're all free and uh, things are on the up. Look after yourself.